Welcome to Good Sex at NYU, a podcast about sex, relationships, health, and mental health in a sex-positive space. So if you're looking for sometimes serious, sometimes funny, and always sex-positive discussions, then you're in the right place. I'm Danielle Elliman, Associate Director of Sexual and Relationship Respect Services at Counseling and Wellness Services. I use she, her pronouns. And I am April Fellers, a nurse and sexual health educator at the Student Health Center. I also use she, her pronouns. We are two white, cisgender, heterosexual, female-identifying clinicians, one with a medical background and the other with mental health experience, who seek to create a space that is inclusive of all identities, backgrounds, and perspectives. Activation warning. The content of this podcast is about sex and relationships. The topics might be uncomfortable and awkward, but we hope that listeners will sit with this discomfort and consider new ideas and not judge others for their identities, likes, and desires. The intention is for the conversations to be positive, but at times we may talk about harms, boundaries that were violated, and trauma that has occurred, which can be difficult for some listeners. Take care of yourself. Listen to your body, and if needed, turn off the podcast and consider what your body and your mind needs to move through the reaction to difficult content. This could mean turning on a TV show, listening to music, calling a friend, going for a walk, or reaching out to the Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999 or Safe Horizons at 1-800-621-4673. Welcome back to Good Sex at NYU. Today's quickie topic is relationship orientations, types, or models, which really refers to the type of sexual and romantic partnerships you see. It can also mean how much relationship security you need and how much exploration you crave. We have been told that monogamy is the norm and the best options for centuries. The truth is, monogamy isn't the best for everyone. What works for one doesn't work for all, And we need to make sure that we're talking about what types of relationships we're interested in and what our boundaries are within those, you know, when we're seeking out partners in the beginning. Yeah, I think that's a good way of framing things around relational security and exploration. We've talked in other episodes about how society still makes us believe that monogamy is the gold standard and that the other options aren't real or are only until one is ready for a monogamous relationship. I mean, how many mainstream romantic comedies do we see where there's anything other than monogamy represented? Yeah, more inclusive romantic comedies might be out there, but I don't think that they get as many views. I mean, I can't name any really off the top of my head. Me either. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we, we do see things like Big Love or Sister Wives, and those show examples of polygamy. And those aren't really the whole picture, especially since we see this in the context of religion. And often the characters, you know, with penis have multiple partners. You know, we don't often get to see polyandry, which is when a woman identifying person has more than one spouse. This is one way in which oppressive ideas circulate in our culture through the media. I think one way we can, you know, practice unpacking how oppressive ideas get translated into our institutions is by thinking about how religion, colonization, and public health have impacted us through our interpersonal relationships and sexual lives. Religion's role in shaping our beliefs around different relationship models seems to be maybe more obvious to me. I mean, many religious texts provide rules and morals around what is deemed acceptable. Colonization might also be more clear in that colonizers used rules and laws to quote unquote, civilize indigenous people. 
and people of gender and racial minorities. And this also intersected with religion. Mm. To have power over others, the colonizers oppressed others. And this included communities that did not marry or you know had multiple partners. They would employ tactics when colonizing land or enslaving people, like shaming them into shifting their beliefs, one of which was related to how they experienced relationships. And if this didn't work, then the consequences you know, could be cutting them off from basic necessities, putting them in jail, and even physically harming them. That's terrible. Why, yeah. did, why did our country do this? I have no idea. At various times throughout history, both local and community governments have also tried to influence and oppress others as a way to manage certain diseases that were spread through sexual contact. One example of this was in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. There were campaigns to blame other countries and certain types of people for syphilis outbreaks. Syphilis used to be more fatal than it is now, and therefore these campaigns created a lot of stigma that still exists around all STIs today. We've talked about that before. The idea was to encourage the community to limit their number of sexual contacts to reduce the spread of disease. Some of this might have been an appropriate public health strategy before treatment and prevention options were well known, but the use of shame around those with STIs and those who have multiple partners can still be felt in current cultures. Yes, it really, really can. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as always, you know, we want to work to uncover what has impacted us and our beliefs um, to decide, you know, if this is something that you know we actually believe, or if it's something we want to shift for ourselves, right? You know, monogamy has, for the last few centuries, been the standard by which many live. I want to highlight the work of Dr. Zana Varangalova, an NYU professor, sex researcher, and hopefully a future guest on our podcast in mm -hmm. fall 2023. We'll have a link to her website where you can access her work. She talks about a number of relevant topics, but today I want to talk about her work around relationship types and models. I really like how she breaks things down into monogamy, open monogamy, polyamory, singledom, and celibacy. That's a great way to break it down. Let's make sure, though, that everyone has the definitions of these types or models. So we'll start with monogamy, which is when partners are focusing on only having sexual and romantic connections with one other person. To break that down a little further, there is classical monogamy, which is a single relationship between people who marry as virgins, remain sexually and romantically exclusive their entire lives, and do not repartner upon the death of their partner. This is probably more rare these days. The other subcategory of monogamy is serial monogamy, which is a cycle in which people are sexually and romantically exclusive with one person for a period of time. And when they break up, they repartner in another sexually and romantically exclusive relationship with a different person. I just want to add one thing that I learned from Dr. Zana's work called hot monogamy, mm. which refers to when a monogamous pair don't have sex or romance, you know, outside of their relationship with others, but they do play with the idea of this, like in their fantasies, or they share um, attractions for others with each other. You know, maybe they flirt with folks and then share that with their partner, or maybe they watch porn together. Ooh, that's a fun one I haven't heard of. I do think that these terms shift and change or expand over time. So there might be other terms out there that we don't include today. So feel free to reach out and share. We also love learning. That's for sure. Our categories, models, types, even that's like, you know, we don't know really how to like, you know, use just one word, but like um, the, uh, the next category is open monogamy which you know some might call ethical or consensual non-monogamy. 
This is where partners agree on only to commit to one uh, romantic relationship or one pair bond with one or both partners having some casual or dating sexual partners on the side. And this can include open relationship, which is when there's one committed relationship with that is emotionally exclusive. They allow for maybe frequent outside casual sex and dates, you know, usually done separately as individuals. Then you have something like swinging, where there is one committed emotionally exclusive relationship allowing for frequent casual sex with others, but this is usually done as a couple. And then you also might have something like cuckolding, which is where one partner watches while the other partner has sex with someone else with everyone's consent as well. And then another subcategory in this ethical non-monogamy, open monogamy is monogamish. And this was coined by uh, Dan Savage of the Savage Love Cast. Really what it means is, you know, there's one committed couple in an emotionally exclusive relationship, allowing for some small amounts of sexual play with others. This is limited in scope and frequency. So monogamish would be an exception to the mostly monogamous relationship. Like someone might be able to kiss someone other than their partner, but nothing other than kissing. Or they might agree to a free pass to have sex with someone else once a year. I once knew a cis man who was married to a trans man, and they were emotionally and romantically committed to one another. But this cis man enjoyed receptive anal sex, something that the trans man could not provide with the potty parts that he had. So they had an agreement that the cis man could have receptive anal sex with other people, but no emotional relationship could develop. The encounters were purely about sex. It's extremely important in all types of open relationships to have clear communication and establish boundaries ahead of time before anything happens outside of the exclusive relationship. This way, both people can express their wants and needs and they can decide together what will work best for them. Yeah. And thinking about hot monogamy and monogamish really reminds me that it's important to have an ongoing conversation with our partners about what we want and need when it comes to our relationship type, as it can shift and change with our sexual project. Is also okay if we have a reaction to a request to shift our relationship type. Mm-hmm. We might need time to process and understand the goals and the shifting sexual projects um, and to not take that in as like we're not enough for our partner. We might start off as strictly monogamous because, you know, we want to feel secure and stable in our relationship. But once we find that, and this might be found at different rates for each partner then we might want to re-explore the boundaries of our relationship. You can start off in one of these models and then end up in a a different one a few years later, and then an altogether different one 20 years after (laughs) the initial relationship began, right? You also might stay in the same relationship type or model throughout the duration of your relationship. Shifting to a new model can be difficult, and our partners you know, might take the request really personally. And it might be about needs not being met, or it could have nothing to do with our specific partner, but rather about our our sexual project changing over time. I think it's important to listen to our partner's needs, wants, boundaries, as well as our own throughout the duration of the relationship. This is why we talk so much about having and continuing to develop healthy communication skills and how to set and honor boundaries. No matter what relationship type or model is right for you, it's important to understand your own boundaries and honor others. Check out our episode on boundaries and how to give and receive no for more about these conversations. So let's finish defining the different models. 
We have polyamory, which is where partners agree to one or both of them having multiple committed romantic relationships, so multiple pair bonds at the same time, with or without additional casual sexual partners. A subcategory under polyamory is hierarchical polyamory. This is multiple committed relationships where one partner is considered primary or the most important, while others are considered secondary or tertiary, etc. Some examples of how or why someone might choose a primary relationship can be based upon sharing a child together, that being the oldest relationship of the bunch, or joint ownership of property. There is also non-hierarchical polyamory. This is multiple committed relationships striving to treat every relationship as equally important. So no primary, secondary, tertiary, etc. Some may also call this relationship anarchy, though often in relationship anarchy, all relationships are included and there's no hierarchy between friends, sexual or romantic partners or family. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to distinguish all of those different subcategories. Mm -hmm. But let's just round out our different relationship models with singledom. People might think that they know this, um, but singledom is when no committed romantic relationship, no pair bond, only casual sex, sexual partners, and or secondary relationships, which, you know, we might also think of as hookups or maybe friends with benefits. Then we also want to include celibacy, you know, neither committed relationships nor hookups as casual datings. Um, you know, we might think of this as partial, which means maybe we have rare romantic and sexual relationships. So someone um, is maybe celibate when it comes to sex, and maybe they ex are on the asexual spectrum, but are ro in romantic relationships. Or perhaps the opposite, where someone is mostly celibate, but occasionally has some sexual contact. And then we have complete um, celibacy. So that's just really where there's no romantic or sexual relationships at all. Often, our culture believes that no one chooses to be single, that everyone aspires to be in a relationship. I hope that we have shifted that, but I mean, as a single person, I don't think that we have. Mm. Being single can be a choice, and it is an acceptable one for all genders. In the past, there have been a double standard that it was acceptable for some folks to be single and that theirs was a choice, and they were revered for it. You know, I hope that we have shifted away from that, but, you know... I don't think that we really have. It's still a negative norm out there. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of oppressive ideologies in this episode. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the negative norm around being single for some. This norm has weaved its way into many of our other conversations. We also don't talk as much about celibacy as a choice. When I think about the term celibacy, it often brings up images of priests and nuns and people who have taken vows of celibacy for their whole life. But sometimes even people who haven't vowed a life of celibacy still go through periods of life where they choose this as an option. It could be when they are first starting to think about sex and romance, or they might decide to take a break at some other point in life. And the reason that someone decides to be celibate might be related to a religious conviction, but it can also be for any number of other reasons. Maybe somebody wants to focus on their friendships over romantic relationships. Maybe someone wants to solely focus on their school or work life. Maybe somebody wants to spend more time getting to know themselves or their body. There are so many reasons why someone might choose a period of celibacy. Then, as you mentioned, Danielle, there are those who identify as asexual or aces and folks on the ace spectrum experience little or no sexual attraction to others. Aces can include their emotional, spiritual, and romantic attraction to other people. Aces may engage in relationships that are romantic, but maybe have minimal sexual contact, or perhaps they view relationships as all being equal without a romantic or sexual component. 
Not all folks who identify as asexual are celibate, and many are in partnered relationships, which can also include monogamous, open, or polyamorous. It's funny how much we talk about communication and boundaries, um, and we really aren't lying about how important they are in any type of relationship, any type of these models, right? As our sexual projects, you know, our life circumstances and our bodies change, we need to be talking about these things and, and how they impact our relationships and our sexual lives. Yeah, I think it's important to be open to our partner's wants, needs, and desires, but not do something that we don't want to do out of duress because of the fear that we might lose our partner. There might be some individual or couple's work that needs to be done before shifting relationship models or types. We might try hot monogamy or monogamish or open monogamy before trying polyamory if one partner is hesitant but open to trying something new. Sometimes we test our own boundaries to see how we react and perhaps if we can shift into a new model. Again, this could be because we are also curious about shifting the boundaries of the relationship, but not because we are bending our boundaries to someone else's wants. Yeah. When one person is hesitant to do something in the relationship, then the person who is asking for the want and need should consider giving that person time to process and figure out where their values and boundaries are. It's natural if two folks have been in a monogamous relationship and didn't discuss different models in the beginning of the relationship to experience some challenges if one wants to shift to a new model or type. You know, a partner receiving a request to shift to open monogamy or polyamory might really take this personally as something that they're not doing well or not doing enough. It might not be about what we can't give our partner or what is wrong with us, but it's more about how secure they feel with our partner and a desire to explore and create some excitement. This can also include if we're asking our partner to shift any boundaries, whether about relationships, sex, time, material, etc. There is a term I've heard called PUD or poly under duress. This means that someone only is only engaging in a poly relationship because they are afraid of losing their partner. This may be a real or perceived threat, and it's important to really listen to the needs of our partners. Evaluate if there are any boundaries that feel more negotiable, but if not, then it might be something that does end the discussion or the relationship. This is why it's so important to have a conversation about what models we are seeking in the beginning so there aren't any miscommunications or unrealistic expectations. Yeah, this actually happened to me, April. I was in a monogamous relationship where we had talked about the possibility of shifting the relationship type at some point in the future. Since we were early in the relationship, we were still sort of navigating, figuring things out. You know, I had shared that I could do open monogamy, but after I felt more stable in a relationship, my partner was absolutely open to this, really wanted this in the relationship. But he was excited that I was open to it um, as part of the conversation so early on. You know, he could do a monogamous relationship as long as it wasn't a fixed state. And that at some point, there would be an option to open things up. Then I had a medical issue come up. Um, and it impacted our ability to be sexually intimate. It was at this point that there was a lot of pressure from my partner to shift to an open relationship. I wasn't really ready, but there was a lot of begging and pleading. Mm. You know, I honestly told my partner that I didn't know how I would react if he decided that this is what he needed to do. When he did seek sex outside the relationship, it ended the relationship. It wasn't that I couldn't do open monogamy, but that I felt that it wasn't where I was at. And I felt like the decision that was made was out of pressure and duress. You know, and I didn't want to be with someone who didn't honor my boundaries. 
Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Danielle. It sounds like you wanted his needs to be met, but that you weren't really ready to open things up. And good for you for holding fast to your boundaries and what you knew you needed and wanted. I know it might have been upsetting in the moment for that relationship to end, but ultimately that was probably the right choice for you. And you were able to make the hard choice and be sad in the moment, but likely happier down the line. It's so important to not pressure your partner into something they don't want to do. It should be a discussion where folks are being heard and everyone feels safe to share their concerns and goals. Being able to feel emotionally safe to share our boundaries is important. We have to process what we want and where our values are so we can be able to articulate to our partners. Communication is mostly about listening and seeing from someone else's point of view But we get stuck in trying to get what we want and get our point across. This is no way to renegotiate the boundaries of a relationship. My former partner only seemed interested in how he would be able to go a month without having sex and not how my original boundary that I had asked for um, at least a year before opening things up. It had only been three months. Mm. I also had some guilt and wanted to make him happy. So I struggled you know, at the time to fully communicate what the consequences would be if the boundary was crossed. You know, it was one of the the first times I I had to talk about these kind of relationship boundaries before getting into a relationship. And it was during a time where I was developing better communication skills. You know, I really learned a lot from that and have been better at communicating my relationship models after this. This is such a helpful example for this conversation Our lives take different twists and turns over the course of time, and we might always want monogamous relationships, but we also need to be open to the fact that monogamy is not the only option and isn't the best option for everyone. As we've heard more about polyamory and started knowing more folks in open or poly relationships, my husband and I have actually talked a lot about our personal preferences related to this topic. I think we both feel fairly confident that monogamy is for us and we don't ever plan to open up a relationship. But we have seen alternative relationship models work in healthy ways for some of our friends, and that helps us to better understand how and why these options work for others, even if that's not the choice that we make. We need to communicate at the beginning of dating when we decide to be in a relationship and as a relationship continues. There are always readjustments to boundaries. It's also helpful to consider our attachment style and how this might be influencing our desire for a different model. And how we might be reacting to a different model um, being presented to us. By attachment style, I think you're talking about anxious, avoidant, disorganized, and secure. I remember learning about these things as an undergrad psych major. Can you refresh my memory and share more about these attachment styles? Yes. And I'll just add that I'm not an attachment style therapist, but I have a a basic understanding and I Mm -hmm. I use some of the basics in my own work. Attachment style is really about the bonds that we are able to form with our caregivers in our early development and how that impacts our relationships outside of that initial attachment and into adulthood. Other early relationships can be healing in our attachment style or they can cause additional challenges when forming attachment. So you mentioned the the different types of attachment. So we have secure attachment, which is where the person is comfortable expressing emotions openly. They can rely upon others and allow others to depend on them. They thrive in relationships, but they're okay on their own as well. They don't depend on the approval of others or their partners, and they have a positive um, view of themselves. So this is kind of what we might aspire to be. Mm. Anxious attachment is when someone may struggle with the thought of being alone 
and this causes a lot of anxiety. They typically have a negative self-image while having a positive image of others, and they often seek the approval, support, and responsiveness from their partner. Folks who have anxious attachment style might highly value their relationships and worry that those they're in relationship with are not as invested. You know, there is a fear of abandonment um, and that they might be perceived as clingy, demanding, preoccupied with relationships and desperate for love. The attention and care and responsiveness of a partner helps to calm the anxiety temporarily. Mm. And then we have avoidant. These folks often perceive themselves as a lone wolf, strong, independent, and self-sufficient on an emotional level. They don't believe that they have to be in a relationship to be complete, and they don't want to depend on others or have others depend on them. They don't seek the approval um, in social bonds, and they often avoid emotional closeness and hide or suppress their feelings when faced with a potentially emotional situation. I think I know a few of those people. <laughs> I, I, I know and have been in some of these different um, uh, disorganized attachments. People who have this attachment style tend to show unstable and ambiguous behaviors in their social bonds. A romantic partner is the source of desire and fear. Another term for people in the disorganized category is fearful avoidant. And people in this category want intimacy and closeness, but experience trouble trusting. Folks in this attachment style struggle with regulating their emotions and avoiding strong emotional attachment due to their fear of getting hurt and their experience difficulty with cultivating and maintaining relationships. I know that is a lot of information mm -hmm. about attachment style, um, and I would encourage listeners to read more about it and speak to their therapist if they want more information. You know, There are various online tests that you can take to determine your attachment style, but I really think working with a therapist is probably the most helpful. I really appreciate hearing more about those attachment styles and refreshing my memory. It feels like this is something that folks might need to process as they are considering the relationship model that works best for them. And if they are seeking to shift the model that they're currently in. Yeah, we need to unpack our feelings about these various relationship models to think about what society has told us about them and what we actually believe. But we also need to process how our past experiences in relationship with family, friends, and former partners play into how we feel in different relationship types. For example, maybe someone who has an avoidant attachment style is only up for casual relationships because they don't want to get close to anyone. Maybe someone who experiences anxious attachment might have a negative self-image and struggle with jealousy, and they don't want to consider open monogamy because of how that might impact their mental health. These are valid and fair reasons to engage in the relationship models that work for them. It is healthier if we are moving towards a more secure attachment for our mental health you know, and to find a sense of stability and security within ourselves. So that way we can choose the relationship type that really feels right to us. Yeah. So I, I think when we were talking about attachment styles at the beginning, and I know you said you're not a, an attachment style therapist specifically, but that you can kind of move towards a healthier, you know, you aren't stuck in the attachment style that you first had growing mm -hmm. up. And so I think that, that that's really beneficial to hear because I think of you know, thinking about people that are non-committal or emotionally unavailable that I have encountered in dating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully if they went to therapy, they could improve on some of that and maybe not, yeah. <laughs> not be that way with future partners. I do think it's also important to mention that when someone is in an abusive relationship, they may not be able to safely say no to a shift in a relationship type. Coercing, using threats, intimidation, and pressure is no way to engage in a discussion around shifting our relationship models. 
All parties in the relationship need to feel safe to discuss their wants, needs, and feelings. We have to be truly open to listening to our partners about the things even if we don't agree, and it can mean listening to what is said and what is not said. Figure out the underlying reason and negotiate. Compromise is part of any relationship, but it doesn't mean compromising our values or our firm boundaries. It can be scary because considering shifting to a new relationship model might mean the end of a relationship, like you mentioned, Danielle. Yeah. It can take a lot of work and communication to navigate any relationship. And this is self-work as well as work as a couple, throuple, etc. Our firm and hard boundaries need to have consequences. And that can be to end a relationship. This is where fears of abandonment, rejection, and being alone might influence our boundaries. Also, thanks for bringing up the concerns around making this shift when in an abusive relationship. You know, we have another podcast about healthy, unhealthy, and abusive relationships that might also be helpful for listeners um, and anyone who experiences any uh, abuse in any type of relationship or is unhealthy that, you know, may want to talk about um, these things for support. And of course, you know, you can talk to a friend, a family member, or a counselor. Those at NYU can call Wellness Exchange and not NYU folks can call the National Hotline and we'll share those resources in our um, show notes. You mentioned before that jealousy is something that anxiously attached folks might experience. And that made me think of something I've heard in conversation around open monogamy and polyamory, that jealousy gets in the way, as does the fear of abandonment. And this makes more sense now. I feel like some jealousy is normal, but it's how we react to this feeling that can sometimes create challenges. I agree. Even securely attached folks can be jealous. The key is to acknowledge the feeling, understand where it's coming from, and do some emotion regulation, you know, a little self-talk and self-validation. And then talk about it with your partner or partners, your friends, your therapist as needed. Often jealousy is about the person experiencing the feeling. And, you know, we need to be able to self-soothe. This can be hard um, if there have been past trust violations in our relationships or if we fear that, you know, we're not enough or that our partner will abandon us because we have experienced abandonment in our past. Yeah, that's a great point about past trust violations and other relationships. My parents got divorced after my dad had multiple affairs. And looking back now, I'm pretty positive that the guy that I was dating at the time of my parents' divorce also cheated on me. And after he and I broke up, I didn't date or have any sexual contact for almost three years. I think part of that was related to my fear that something similar would happen with whoever I dated next. Mm -hmm. I also had a bad experience with someone I met through a dating app. And after that, I chose to get off the apps for a couple of years before I felt like I could truly start trusting others again. Honestly, I think it's a miracle that I ever even met my husband. (laughs) I think that's a true testament to the importance of therapy and doing individual self-work. But I'm not going to lie. I did have a few moments in the beginning of my dating relationship with my husband where I did feel a little jealous. And you know what helped me get over that? Mm -hmm. Talking to him about my feelings. Yeah. Well, and I think like one of the things that we've talked about before, but I just want to name here too, is that we don't bring perfect people into relationships. Mm. And so you don't have to, you know, go to therapy and fix everything or like, and again, fix isn't, you know, the right word, but just to say like, you don't have to bring a perfect person into a relationship because that's never going to happen. You know, like we always say communication, 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 also knowing your values and how that impacts your boundaries. April and I talk about communication and boundaries all the time, but we also seek to uncover the internalized oppression we carry to avoid unintentionally oppressing others in our interpersonal relationships. If someone you know is exploring a model that is not something that you would choose, then allow space without judgment. If you go out on a date with someone and their model isn't what you feel comfortable with, 
then ask questions out of curiosity about whether or not you know, there's negotiation or this might work for you, not to prove that their chosen model is not right or not acceptable. If you have questions about the podcast or anything we talked about today, please feel free to reach out to us at goodsex.podcast at nyu.edu. This email address is monitored during business hours. It may take three to four days for follow-up. We are definitely open to critical and thoughtful feedback as we didn't cover everything in this episode and might have said something that was inaccurate or that had a negative impact on someone. If you have questions about your sexual health and are an NYU student, you can connect with our Student Health Center sex expert at sexpert at nyu.edu or schedule an appointment through the Student Health Center portal. Look at our show notes for additional information and resources, including organizations, articles, books, and videos. If you have urgent mental health concerns, safety issues, or you are worried that someone might have caused harm to you or that you might have caused harm to someone, then you can contact NYU's Confidential Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999. Chat with them using their mobile app or email them at wellness.exchange at nyu.edu. For anyone, NYU or non-NYU listeners, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or the National Mental Health Hotline. Simply dial 988 from anywhere in the U.S. Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode where we continue to talk about good sex at NYU. Subscribe to the podcast to hear all of our quickies and interviews with NYU community members. Thanks to our content contributors for this episode, Bernadette Kerr, Alyssa LaFosse, Dr. Dominic Viney Emisa, Zoe Raguzios, and to our health promotion team, Anna Genova, Jenny Mellum, Parade Stone, and Arna Dixit, and to Gotham Studios and Karen Ortman. 